Well, thank you, worship team. Uh, our worship is centered on Christ, and um, these songs have just ministered to my heart in such a significant way, and I know it has to the church as well. We praise God for great songs that point us to Christ. Our sermon text for today is found in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. How would your life be different if you had never been told about Christ? Would your worldview be different? Would your actions be different? What about the culture around us? How would the church even exist without the knowledge of Christ? What about the world? What about the universe? No Christ, no Christianity, no Christians, no church, no creation. Jesus is a big deal, isn't he? Absolutely nothing in the universe can exist apart from Christ. His saving revelation is the only true source of hope anyone can experience. Jesus is not just really important. He is the most important man who has ever lived. Now, we know that Jesus is a big deal, but why? Why is that the case? The, the world has seen a lot of incredible people. But what makes Jesus so much more special and important than them all? Well, today we embark on a journey. A journey into, a journey into the past. In this series and in this sermon, we want to answer this guiding question. Why is Jesus so important? So today, I want you to imagine yourself entering a time capsule and arriving 2,000 years ago. I want you to observe carefully, as Mark highlights, the person and the work of Christ. And once you see him, once Christ is exposited before you in this series, you will understand why Jesus matters. Now, this series will be long. I told you a few weeks ago that we would probably have about 100 sermons, and you thought I was kidding. I am not. And even as I prepared my first sermon, I I really intended to preach verses 1 through 8, but I realized 
that I bit more than I could chew. So we're only doing verses 1 through 3 today. So children, I am sorry, we're not going to talk about camel hair, honey, and grasshoppers today, okay? But if you want to hear about that, come next week. We will talk about that next week. But the reality is this, we're going even slower than what we initially thought. But here's what I want you to know and see in this series. Every second we invest in knowing Christ is the second that will yield eternal reward. So we need not rush. We, we need not be hurried. Instead, we should slow down and behold Christ for who he is. Paul would say to us today, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So, to the unbelieving friend among us today, you are about to hear the most important story you could ever hear. You are about to hear the story of him who created you. You are about to hear a story about him who made you special, just the way you are. You are about to hear the story of the only person who can actually give you meaning in life. You are about to hear the story of the only man who can help you in the one problem no one else can help you. The only man who can forgive your sin and reconcile you to the Father. To the believers among us, we desire to be more like Christ, don't we? This is what it means to be a Christian. Christ is progressively becoming greater and greater in our hearts. And the more we love him, the more we become like him. But how can we love him whom we do not know? Knowing Christ is the beginnings of loving Christ. So for the next several months, couple of years, I still think I'm joking, you will behold Christ. And in this series, this series will work together to complete the work he has begun in you. We never graduate from knowing Christ. We never know him enough and we never will. We never outgrow the simple message of the gospel. So today, we want to begin answering this question that is going to inform our entire series and our sermon today. Why is Jesus so important? But before we do that, I want to I want to back up a little bit and I want to I want to consider the background of Mark. I think this is going to help us uh, be well informed for the whole whole series. So, your Bible is divided into two parts. First, you have the Old Testament, which tells the story of 
the origin of humanity all the way, or the origin of creation all the way leading up to the promises of the coming of Christ. Then you have the New Testament, which is the story of Christ coming all the way to new creation, that which we often call heaven. The first four books of the New Testament, the second half of the Bible, are called the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're like ancient biographies that tell us the story of Christ. The Gospel of Mark, which is where we are today, is the shortest of all four Gospels. And it also is likely a source that the other Gospels use to compile their own information. Mark was written quite early. It is likely the first Gospel to be written, probably written in the early 50s or in the 60s. This is important because these dates they put the Gospel of Mark well within the lives of those who were themselves eyewitnesses of Christ. So we can trust the reliability of the Gospel of Mark because of those who first read it, of those to whom it was first written. Although the Gospel of Mark does not mention the name of Mark in it, technically, the Gospel of Mark is an anonymous gospel. Church history tells us that Mark himself wrote it. Mark was an influential young man in the early church. His family owned a house in Jerusalem, and the church, at least parts of it, often, at least parts of it often met in his house. It is to his house that Peter goes to once he is miraculously freed from prison in Acts 12. Mark was associated with Barnabas. Barnabas was his cousin. And he was also associated with Paul. Initially, he went with Paul and Barnabas to their first missionary journey, but he dissented them, creating a division. Later on, we learn from Colossians and from Philemon that the schism, the division that happened between Mark and Paul was amended. But perhaps most significantly, especially for the gospel of Mark, is the fact that Mark was associated with the apostle Peter. Peter himself calls Mark his son. In 1 Peter 5.13. Not physical son, but a spiritual son. So close was their association. Historians actually tell us that Mark was a scribe to Peter. We know Peter was an incredible preacher. His sermons in the book of Acts converted thousands so Mark likely wrote his gospel as he compiled Peter's stories of Jesus. Early church father 
and Bishop Papias said this about the Gospel of Mark. Mark, being the interpreter of Peter, whatsoever he remembered, he wrote accurately. So, there is a sense in which the Gospel of Mark is the Gospel of Peter. And Peter was one of the closest disciples to Christ. So what we are getting here is a first-hand account of the person and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Perhaps for this reason, the Gospel of Mark is filled with Jesus at work. Mark does not highlight the teaching of Jesus as Matthew does. Or the historicity of Jesus as Luke does. Or the theology of Jesus as John does. Mark highlights Jesus in action. We see more than anywhere else the work of Christ. The word, the Greek word, euthus, means immediately, appears in this 16 chapters, 47 times. The book quickly shifts from one scene to another, leaving us very little time to even to breathe or take a break as we see Jesus in action. Jesus at work. And this book very quickly arrives at the last week of Jesus' life. Jesus' passion, Easter week, takes up one-third of this book. The central theme of this book is summarized on the hinge verse as Jesus turns his face towards Jerusalem to be crucified. Mark 10, 47. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, if you had never heard this verse before, I am sure you would strike you as strange. A strange verse. The most remarkable thing about the most remarkable man is the fact that he came to die. It seems strange because first, doesn't everybody die? Dying doesn't seem to be a very remarkable thing. What's remarkable about dying? And secondly, remarkable people live. Dying is for the weak. Living is for the strong. Well, friends, Christ died. But he did not die the death of a weak man. Mark tells us that he came to give his life. Jesus willed himself to die. No one took his life from him. He willingly laid it. But also, although all who were born die, Jesus' death was different. 
you died as a ransom for many. You died so that you and I could live. He died with a purpose. He died to accomplish a mission. No one else can say that in the same sense that Jesus says this. No one else can say that they have died to ransom anyone's soul. Only Jesus' death saves sinners from condemnation. And friends, this is why we must behold Christ. This, this is why, because we are doomed to die twice. Our bodies will fail and will die, just as every man and woman that have lived before us have. But we are also doomed to die a death of spiritual condemnation. The second death. And apart from Christ, there is no hope of escaping either one of those deaths. But because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul was counted free. Friends, this message is a message of hope. Friends, apart from Christ, you will be condemned. But in Christ, his condemn your condemnation has been absorbed. And this is why Paul is able to say in Romans 8, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So friends, the death of Christ is the death of a strong man who dies to ransom those who should have died. But instead, he dies in their place. Jesus' death is different also because he did not stay in the grave. Jesus did not stay dead. He resurrected. And along with him, there is a promise for the resurrections of our very body. bodies. We may die in the flesh. But because Jesus was raised and he today lives in the body, we too will live in, a, live in a renewed body. Just as Christ lives, we too live. So friend, if you have not come to Christ, if you have not believed in his death in your place, this series is a challenge for you to look to Christ and say, I want life, so I will believe in the one who died for me. It is by faith that Jesus' death is accounted to us. And it is by faith that we in Christ live. Well, friends, clearly Christ is unique. Clearly he's special. Clearly he is the utmost of utmost importance. But why? Let's get back to that question. So our text today is going to answer this question in two ways. Jesus is the Son of God. Therefore, He is important. And Jesus is the promised Messiah. Therefore, He is important. So Jesus is the Son of God. Look at verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the, the word gospel 
we know well, right? Evangelion, which means good news. This word was vastly used in the Old Testament, uh, but, but in a different sense. Usually it referred to the good news that a military battle had been won. Peace has been conquered. So after reminding Israel about the oppression of Egypt and Assyria, the prophet Isaiah goes on to proclaim the good news that Israel would eventually be redeemed by the Lord. So he says, How beautiful upon the, upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings gospel. Good news. Who publishes peace. Who brings good news of happiness. Who publishes salvation. Who says to Zion, Babylon doesn't reign. Assyria doesn't reign. Egypt doesn't reign. Your God reigns. There is victory in God. But Mark uses this word differently here, doesn't he? There is a sense in which Mark understands the gospel as a proclamation of victory. But for Mark, the gospel is the gospel of Jesus Christ. For Mark, the gospel is the good news about the events of Jesus' life. This is why he goes on to put before us for the next 16 chapters, Christ. And this Christ is the Son of God. Throughout the Bible, the concept of sonship is very important. But the title, Son of God, takes special importance in the Gospel of Mark. Clearly, it is the first description of Jesus, the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus Christ? He is the Son of God. But this theme also runs through the entire book. God the Father himself refers to Jesus as his son twice. 1.11 in his baptism, 9.7 in the transfiguration. Opposite to God the Father, demons know that Jesus is the son of God. But perhaps most surprisingly, the first man to ever recognize Jesus as the son of God in the gospel of Mark is not one of his followers. It is not one of his disciples. This man didn't even believe in Christ. He wasn't even a Jew. It was a Roman centurion that pinned him to the cross and observed him take his last breath. And as he witnesses the dying Christ, he exclaims, Truly, this man was the Son of God. But what is the relevance of being the Son of God? Well, I I've had new experiences about having sons and daughters this week, right? I don't know if you know this. I have a 10-day-old daughter. I can almost count her uh, lifespan in hours. Uh, we're kind of losing track of hours, doing days now. We're going to go to weeks and then months and then years, Lord willing. Uh, but, you know, when a, new, when a new baby is born, you know, there's always that question, who does he look like? Who does she look like? And uh, apparently I'm losing the battle because everybody sees Indy in Elise. And, you know, but that's for her good, right? It's better that she looks like Indy than she looks like me. But, but there, there, is this, there, is this, uh, there is this love, of, uh, there is this desire that a father uh, uh, our mother has to look like 
their children. Uh, because this resemblance brings more than just physical appearance, right? It brings about affinity. It brings about communality. It brings about the sharing of all things. My children, whatever I own is theirs. Whatever my wife owns is theirs. If Jesus is the son of God, this means that Jesus is one with God. If Jesus is the one, is the son of God, this means that he is in purpose, one with God, and in essence, one with God. If Jesus is one with God, Jesus is God. If Jesus is one with God, everything that belongs to God belongs to Jesus. This is why we're Christians, because we worship Christ, because he is God. He was no mere man. He is God in the flesh. This is why, friends, we don't live our lives according to what we want to do. We instead hear the words of the Father in the transfiguration, and he says, this is my beloved son. So what should be our response to the fact that Jesus is God's son? The father says, listen to him. We listen to Christ. Our lives are guided by what Christ says. The law that lives in our heart is the law of Christ. When Christ says, do this, don't do that, that's exactly how we guide our lives. Friends, at Central Baptist Church, we do all things in order to bring glory to Christ. We're not building our kingdom. Our desire is not the world will look and think that necessarily this congregation is great, but that the Savior of this congregation is great. We worship God in Christ. So our purpose statement here says this. We exist to proclaim the gospel for the hope of the lost, for the edification of the church, and for the glory of God in Christ. Why? Because Christ is God. We're not building a church that caters to the desires of the society around, around us. Although we do want to reach the society. We're not trying to appeal to visitors when we put our services together, although we do want to be welcoming. A successful Sunday service is not measured by how many people are in this building or any other kind of metrics, but by the intensity in which we worship Christ. It is not about us. It is about Him. Why? Because Jesus is God. But friends, there's more here. And, and here is where the good news really starts to land. Hebrews 2.11 says this, For he, Christ, who sanctifies, and those who are being sanctified, that are us, all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. So, if Jesus is working in you, if Jesus is sanctifying you, he's also sharing his position as son of God with 
you. And if you are Jesus' brother in the faith, everything that belongs to God belongs to Christ. And everything that belongs to Christ belongs to you. Do you see that? Do you see how important it is that we would understand that Jesus is the Son of God? It is the union with Christ that gives us every benefit that the Christian could ever need. This is why, friends, for us that are Christians, we can surely say that if we have Christ, we have all that we need. And friends, Christ's supply is inexhaustible. For all that we need, we lack nothing. Ephesians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. Did you hear that? In Christ. In Christ. By virtue of being united with Him. We lack nothing. Now, in the past couple of weeks, right, we've had some changes in our house. Yes, I'm going to milk that as an illustration for the next several months. You know, originally we were two, Indy and I. We had quite a bit of resources for just the two of us to enjoy. Then came Boaz. And we had to learn to share, share our resources, share our vacations or the lack thereof, share our time, share our sleep, all things. Now, in addition to Boaz, we have Elise. And although we love our home just the way it is, we have to share even more. And as loving and as caring as the Almeida household is, there is a limit for what Indy and I can supply for our children. But this is not true of God. God's grace never reaches a limit. It is endless. So when we share the inheritance of Christ, we are sharing infinity. So Christ is able to share his inheritance with us and never lose anything. And never experience scarcity. When Jesus invites us to become his brothers and sisters, he shares with us not from his need, but from his abundance. Again, Ephesians 1, 7. In him, in Christ again, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Because Jesus is God, he owns all things, and his supply of grace is infinite. Right? 
Friends, we live in a society that thrives on making people feel dissatisfied. Th this, by the way, is advertisement 101. I if you can convince, convince someone that they are dissatisfied with something, you can sell them something. We live in a society that thrives on making people feel dissatisfied. If, if you just can get a better car, then your life will be complete. If, or if you just can get a bigger house, or if you just can get a, another job, your life will be complete. If you just can get another wife, then your problems will go away. Satisfaction, friends, is right there. It's what the world wants you to think. But when you get to, the, to what the world promises to satisfy you, you realize that it is a mirage all along. Friends, our desires don't get satisfied because the circumstances around us change. Our desires are satisfied when the object of our faith changes. Being satisfied in Christ is the only solution for all our dissatisfaction. I wonder if you've walked into this building today with a dissatisfied heart. With a, long, with a longing for something to change in your life. A hope that the depression, the anxiety, the suffering, the loneliness, the purposelessness, the pain and shame would just go away. Maybe you're asking the question, is there hope? For the restless heart? Is there a hope for the discontent heart? Is there hope for the empty heart? Is there hope for me? Sometimes we're very good at walking around pretending that we're filled. Isn't that true? But the reality is that often we're not, we're empty. Is there hope for me? Yes, there is. You too can be along with Christ, a son of God. This can be your irrevocable, God-given rights. And if you are a son of God, the God who owns all things will supply your every need to a point of abundance, great abundance. John 1, 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Friends, do you call God your father? Is God the source of encouragement, of strength? Is God the one who supplies for your every need if you were to listen to this verse if you were to receive christ that means if you were to believe in him 
believe he, that he died in your place, that he lived the life you couldn't live, that he died the death that you deserved, and he rose in power on your behalf. You are weak, and he's strong, and your weakness in him is strength. If you were to believe in that, friend, you would become a child of God. And children of God receive the inheritance of God. Have you received Christ? But not only is Jesus the Son of God, He's also the promised Messiah. Now, let's go to verses 2 and 3. But first, to understand verses 2 and 3, we need to understand the first word in verse 1. The beginning. What is the beginning referring to? Verse 1 states, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is that a title for the entire book? Or is that the, be or is the beginning that go the, of the gospel that Mark mentions in verses, uh, actually what we see in verses 2 and 3? Is it a title for the entire book? Or is it saying that we're going to see where the gospel begins in verses 2 and 3. This is actually a very debated point of the gospel of Mark. It might be the most debated aspect in the entire gospel of Mark. It does not seem to be the case that verse 1 functions as a title for the book. And, and I think that that's the case for two main reasons, okay? First, it says the beginning of the gospel, but what Mark presents to us is actually the entire gospel, right? The, the whole book is the entire gospel of Jesus Christ. So it doesn't make sense to say the beginning of the gospel is the title of the entire book. Uh, that it would be, make more sense for the title to say the whole gospel of Jesus Christ. But secondly... Uh, verse 2 makes an immediate and a direct connection with verse 1. Verse 1 says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then verse 2 begins, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. So this, as it is written, is connecting, right, the gospel with what Isaiah says. So I believe that verse 1, the beginning of the gospel, is really saying, the beginning of the gospel is found in the prophecies of the Old Testament. So Mark is about to tell us the gospel according to Isaiah. What Mark is saying here is that the gospel has its origin in the Old Testament. It does not begin in the New Testament. All of the Old Testament pointed forward to the coming of Christ. Jesus was the promised Messiah who was promised from the very beginning. In Him, right, 2 Corinthians 10, in Him, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 1, in Him all of the promises of God, all of the promises of God, find their yes and amen. Jesus would say to the Pharisees concerning, concerning Moses' writing, Something very similar, wouldn't he? John 5, 46, for, you, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me. Why? 
because Moses wrote of me. So Mark then goes on to quote Isaiah. But not only does he quote Isaiah, he also, surprisingly, and actually initially, quotes Malachi and also the book of Exodus. So what we have here is not just a quotation for, from Isaiah, but it is actually a tapestry of biblical citations where Mark is making an argument that we are about to see a new exodus. This exodus was to be prepared not by a new Moses, but by a new Elijah who was announcing not that God's people would leave Egypt, but that now Egypt would leave God's people. The transformation would be internal. Not that God's people would leave its oppressors. This Elijah would say that this exodus is different because God is the one who traverses the desert this time. God is the one who comes for his people. You know, I, I love the, the movie, uh, the, the, the trilogy, I think it's a trilogy, uh, Taken by Liam Neeson. Have you seen that movie? Right? So he tells the, those that kidnap his daughter, I will look for you, I will find you, and I will kill you. Right? It was, there is, throughout the movie, there is this certainty that Liam Neeson is going to find his daughter and he is going to deliver her, right? The motivation of a fa father to deliver his daughter is relentless. And this is what's being announced. Out of the desert, a voice cries out saying, prepare the way because God who never fails is coming. He is coming. Now, did you hear the reading from Malachi that thou did just a few minutes ago? He is coming. For the God who comes rescues his people. For he's also a refining fire. He is coming not just to rescue his people, but to purify his people, to sanctify his people, to save his people of the sin within. We're going to see in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus is able to to forgive sin. He has authority over all things. This is a God who comes. You know, for some reason, modern evangelicalism has embraced a picture of an idol God. A God who sits there. A God who wishes and hopes that we would take action. A, a God who kind of just wishes we would just better ourselves a little bit. But that's not the gospel that's proclaimed in the gospel of Isaiah and Malachi and Exodus. The gospel that was proclaimed by Elijah. The gospel that was proclaimed by Moses. The gospel that is proclaimed by John the Baptist. The gospel that is proclaimed in the word of God is the gospel of a God who chases after his people until he finds them. Rebellion does not matter. God has the power to overwhelm, overcome, override the rebellion of his people. He is a God who transforms his people at a heart level. So we hear the voice from the desert, God is coming. 
And when he finds you, you will not be the same. You will be changed. You will be transformed. His finding of you does not depend on your abilities to find him. He is able to find the lost sheep even to the ends of the earth. Our Father is relentless, but not only that, He is powerful. And He will cross the wilderness. We will not cross the wilderness this time. He will, and He will rescue His people. John the Baptist, whom we're going to hear more um, from the next week, was the cousin of our Lord Jesus Christ. He was the first prophet after 400 years of silence. And he cries out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. He is the herald announcing the coming of a great king. There was something major that was about to happen in salvation history. The great covenantal promise that God would be with his people was about to be fulfilled. But friends, the only way God... God's people can be with God if God is if God will come to us. John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up on the last day. Romans 5, 8, but God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved. First John 4.10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. No one comes to God until God comes to them. For a few things in Bible are as few things in the Bible are as plain as this. Therefore, there is absolutely no room in Christianity for pride. No one is a Christian because they're good. There's no room for boasting. There's no room for us to think that our spiritual vitality saved us, our morality saved us, our ability to cross the spiritual depth saved us. Nothing that we have done has earned salvation on our behalf. No, it was God's willingness to cross the great chasm to cross the wilderness that saved us. This understanding of salvation breeds humility, doesn't it? And it also produces thankfulness. When we understand that salvation belongs to the Lord, but He grants it to us, what else can we say but thank you? This is the essence of praise. This is what motivates true worship. The reason why we're going through the gospel of Mark is because God is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And friends, the ultimate, God of exposi- or the ultimate goal of expository preaching is worship. And worship is only true when we understand and respond to what God has done for us through the life and work of Christ. The gospel of Mark will also impart in our hearts patience and hope. God's people waited 
for the first coming of the Messiah for millennia. 400 years of silence. But then a voice cried out in the wilderness. My wife often says we need to learn to enjoy seasons of waiting because so much of Christianity is about waiting. She's right. We must enjoy waiting because in waiting our patience and our hope are built. But in waiting, remember, God always comes for his people. God never forsakes his people. As we heard from Habakkuk. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow. Wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Friends. Our Savior came. And he's coming again. And the gospel of Mark will teach us to live with this expectation in our hearts. So this series is to you and to me an invitation. Let us travel in time, look and behold Christ, and let us humbly enthrone him in our midst as the only one who is worthy of worship. And our only hope in life and in death. Would you pray with me? Father, we need to know Christ. There is no greater value in this life than to know him. I pray that you would teach us to patiently wait for his revelation, to worship him as the son of God. Lord, help us be humble in knowing that he is the one who came to us. Otherwise, we would have never come to him. Help us know, trust in the person and the work of Christ as we see revealed to us in the gospel of Mark. Lord, I pray that through this series, many souls would be saved. Pray that in this series, many believers would be encouraged. I pray that in this series, your church would be built. And I pray, Lord, that in this series, true worship would emanate from our hearts. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.